Please stand for the reading of the scriptures. We'll be reading Ruth chapter 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Melon and Chilion. They were Ephraites from the Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpha, and the second named Ruth. After they lived in Moab for about ten years, both Melon and Chilion died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. She said to them, Each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? I am, a, am I able to have more, any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again they wept loudly, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Do not persuade me to leave you or to go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem, When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Lord has afflicted me. So Naomi came back 
from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabite. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank you for the reading of the scripture. Noah, I'm going to ask if, if you would to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in here to uh, these four chapters of Ruth. May this people here, Lord, bless you at all times. May your praise be continually in our mouths. See that our boast is in you alone. May we be a people that magnify you and exalt your name together. Lord, we come to this book of Ruth this morning and I pray that you would grant us eyes to see what you're saying, ears to hear your truths, and feet to walk out these truths. By your grace and enabling power given to us through your Holy Spirit, help us to walk faithfully with you. Teach us what it is to taste and see that you are good. Blessed is the man, Scripture says, who trusts in you. There is no want to those who fear you, Lord. Those who seek you shall not lack any good thing. Lord, we're reminded of these things as we turn to your word. We know that when the righteous cry out, you hear them. You deliver them out of all their troubles. You are near to those who have a a broken spirit and save such as have a contrite heart. Lord, this morning we recognize that you are the one who redeems the soul of your servants. And none of those who trust in you shall be condemned. So Lord, this morning we pray that you would have your own way in us right now as we have your word open before us. Teach us your word and your ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Remember God's distribution plan we spoke of a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy. That's where it first came up. We, we brought it back uh, last week as we were talking about judges. But that distribution plan of how God designed his words and his ways to be carried forward into the next generation. Dads and moms loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Dads and moms taking God's words into their own hearts, living them out. And then as dads and moms are living these words and ways out, they are also teaching their children, talking to their children about these words and ways of God. And as children hear and see God's words and ways from their parents, the hope is that the children grab hold of these truths and live them out themselves so that the next generation then that comes along, they can effectively distribute God's words and ways along to them and so on. That's the Deuteronomy 6, in particular Deuteronomy 6 uh, plan that God has put forward. And we brought up this distribution plan Last week, in light of the post-Joshua generation, right? Judges chapter 2, verse 10. There arose another generation after Joshua that did not know the Lord. This 
this next generation after Joshua was theologically illiterate, right? They, they didn't know God. And they were biblically illiterate. They didn't know the work that God had done. One generation. Well, the book of Judges captures some 350 years, give or take, maybe up to 400 years of chaos, disobedience, turmoil. These were the days when there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see that the very last verse of the book of Judges. These were the days when God's people did not cease from their own doings or from their own stubborn ways. Judges chapter 2 verse 19 says. It's quite a segment of time to live in. Can you imagine living in these days? These days of the Judges. Six words hopefully are familiar from last week. Sin. Delivery. Cry, deliverer, rescue, rest. And then the people reverted once again to sin, didn't they? And the cycle repeated itself, and it repeated itself. God's original distribution plan is hard to recognize during this period of the judges, isn't it? And yet, as we talked about and ended last week, we keep reading the scripture. We keep reading God's story. And we see that there's more to it. It doesn't just end in Judges, praise God. There's more. Nor does it just skip forward to the birth of Samuel and go to 1 Samuel. God's story includes the book of Ruth. Four chapters, a sum total of 85 verses. If, if in your Bible, you, you might actually skip over it, it's so short. You, you might miss it. You might go from Judges and you see the headers and, oh, 1 Samuel's next. You got to be careful, you might miss Ruth. She's here. A small book that's tucked right in between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's another history book. It's the third of 12 history books in the Old Testament. And instead of a continuation from the book of Judges, where we pick up at the end of Judges and then move forward, instead of that, we read these words in the opening verses of Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So we have the book of Judges, covers this large scope of history and time. And we have this small, short book of Ruth that sits in that period of Judges. Okay? It's, it's a part of this history of the Judges. Now we don't know for certain exactly where in that bracket of history of Judges that the book of Ruth sits. We're not 100% sure. But coming off of a heavy dose of military skirmishes, patterns of disobedience, abundant lawlessness among God's people, you couldn't have picked a more contrasting book to come next in the lineup of God's word. Ruth. Even the name, right? Even the name suggests a turn of events. 
A change of direction. A lighter book. (laughs) Not as much intense fighting. Ruth. A woman of virtuous character. Noble. Courageous. Kind-hearted. Loyal. You read this short book of Ruth... And you discover that Ruth, though she lives during the days when the judges ruled, some say that she was a contemporary at the time of Jephthah. Jephthah was one of the last judges, came right before Samson in that period of time. Though she lives in the days of the judges, she doesn't quite fit the mold of one living in the days of the judges, does she? One writer said, Ruth and Boaz illustrate what covenant righteousness and loyalty are in an era when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've got here in the book of Ruth, and in particular in the person of Ruth, and I would go so far as to say, and in the person of Boaz, we've got some high character people. Praise God! They haven't disappeared. We're in the midst of the judges. And we get a look and see. In an era where self-centeredness blossomed and manifested its fruit for many generations. How is God going to distribute his words and ways now? The book of Ruth serves as an illustration for how God would keep his words and ways moving forward. If not through a leader, if not through a judge, he would use the common. He would use the ordinary. He would use a woman and her husband. Neither of which had the pedigree of anything great. But then again, isn't this the kind of person that God typically uses? We look at a passage of scripture in Corinthians chapter 1. We see in verses 27 through 29, God has chosen, listen to the kind of folks he chooses. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of, uh, to, of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen the things which are not God's chosen to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence so the book of Judges closes and the reader is left wondering is faith in God is it going to continue Or will Israel submerge herself full-time into the pool of pagan gods prevalent in the Gentile nations surrounding her? In fact, it's a question that that a couple of the writers, I I love this, that they actually ask this question. How did the faith of Israel survive? And they go on and they say, we suggest it survived in the families of common folk such as Elimelech and Naomi. The overall picture was grim, but there were faithful individuals. 
How could, thinking fast forward to David, because Ruth ends with David, doesn't it? Ends with David. It's pointing us to David, who's yet to come. How does a faith like David's still exist after some 400 years of hard times as those described in the book of Judges? The story of Ruth, drawn from David's ancestry, offers an explanation of the survival of faith. Ruth gives us that that look and see. It opens a window for us to see that God is truly at work. It looks bleak, it looks dark, it looks hopeless. But Ruth is here in the midst of these, these two books, Judges and 1 Samuel, and gives us a window to see that all is not lost. It is not as hopeless as what it may seem. Amidst the dark backdrop of this period of the judges, God is still at work. And as a reader, we leave the book of Judges and we just... We scratch our head, we walk away wondering, how's this all going to work out? How's, How's God going to work this one? How's he going to get his word in ways to the people that need to get the words in the ways so this distribution plan, how's this all going to happen? Well, we don't have to wait very long because the very next book tells us. It gives us a picture. In just four chapters, the book of Ruth captures our attention. It draws us in. It pulls us into the scene of one family who carried the righteousness of God forward into the next generation. While it is one of 66 books of the scripture, all of which are God-breathed, it's also a literary masterpiece. In fact... I'd like to just read again those first five verses. Listen to all the detail. Listen to what's going on here. In five verses, you and me, we are in the story. We are in the account. We're caught up to speed on what is happening. It came to pass for the days, when the days, in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. A certain man in Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of the two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. There's a lot there. We've got a win in the days of the judges. We've got a what? What's going on? There's a famine in the land. We've got the who, uh, the certain man. We get his name, Elimelech. And we've got his wife, Naomi. And we've got two sons, Malon and Kilion. And we've got the where. See, they, they, they live in Bethlehem, Judah. They're Ephrathites. And they are en route. They are on a journey. And the reason they're on a journey gives us the why. It's because of the famine. They're traveling because there's a famine in the land. And many of us in here have no idea what it is to be in the midst of a famine. If we're hungry, we go to the pantry. This was 
serious. And Elimelech is trying to provide as best he can for his family. We don't know what led him to just go to Moab. We don't know. We don't have all the details. But he goes to Moab. The story opens up with conflict. It opens up with struggle. He's providing for his family, at least making efforts to do so. His family is on the move. Verse 3 then tells us Elimelech dies. Things are getting worse. Conflict is ramping up. Verse 4 tells us that Malon, Malon and Kilion take wives among the women of Moab. And red flag, red flag, red flag goes off. You see, the Moabites are descendants of, of Abraham's nephew Lot. You might remember that in Genesis chapter 19. Moab. We see here just in recent history, as we've read um, back in Numbers 25, when they were on the plains of Moab, the people of God. Um, it, was, it was the women. They, they, they were uh, diving into harlotry with the women of Moab in Numbers 25, 1 and 2. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 23, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, we see that they're, they're, they're coupled with the Ammonites. And it says that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor. These Moabites weren't even allowed entry into the congregation. Elimelech takes his family to Moab. Really at this time, in many ways, enemy territory. They weren't kind to Israel, at least at this point. Later on in the book of Samuel, we'll see they uh, are, are helping uh, at some level with David and what's going on there. But we saw even in, in the last book of Judges, Eglon is the king of Moab and he's oppressing the people of Israel. And Ehud is the judge who delivers the people in that moment. But we see this, this backdrop of Moab and we, we wonder why. We wonder why Moab. Why are we going to Moab? Well, we go to Moab and as the story continues, we see it's in Moab where Orpah marries Kilion, Ruth marries Malon. And for 10 years, the text says, about 10 years, they dwell in Moab. And then we get the idea and impression that Malon and Kilion die. Conflict has just elevated a bit more. If, you, if you're familiar with a, a treadmill, uh, in, the, in the, the fancy treadmills that are out today, you get on a treadmill and you start running and you have the ability to push a button that says incline. And you push the button on incline and you're still running, you're running, you're running, but the incline goes and you start running up a hill. And you, know, you, you think you're going really good and, and all of a sudden that incline comes and it's a lot slower running. Any of you that's been on a treadmill and has done the incline, you know what I'm talking about. That's exactly what's happening right here in the text. The conflict, the struggle is just being ramped up. Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion die. We now have three women. No husbands. Elimelech gone. Malon gone, Kilion gone. How are these three women going to make it without their husbands? Who's going to provide for them? What's the future going to hold for these three? This all comes out of the first five verses. That, that's the first five verses. It draw, this draws you in 
to their situation. It's very real. The name of this book is Ruth. She actually comes on the scene in verse 4. We're introduced to her in verse 4. She's a young woman. She's been married for some time to Malon. We know that she was married to Malon. The text tells us in chapter 4, verse 10, that she is the widow of Malon. We don't get that piece until later in chapter 4. She's from Moab. She's introduced in the midst of an opening chapter that hangs heavy. Death pervades the first chapter. If, that, if you want to think about chapter 1, that's probably a, a good label for, for chapter 1, death. That's the override. It just hangs over this chapter. Naomi's husband and two sons have died. Orpah's husband is dead and Ruth's husband is dead. The book's title bearer, listen, the book's title bearer, Ruth, she's even dealing with the same prospect of death. She gets no free pass from having to go through the difficulties attached to a loved one dying. Naomi gets word that the Lord has visited his people back in Bethlehem. Verse 6. So she begins the journey back to her homeland and her daughters-in-law are with her at the outset. But Naomi quickly encourages these women to stay in Moab. Stay in your homeland. And after a back and forth, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and goes back home to her family and to her gods. Did you see that in verse 15? But Ruth, the text says, clings to Naomi, verse 14. Ruth clings to her. Naomi's stuck, literally, with Ruth. Ruth isn't going anywhere. Listen to these words. Probably two of the more familiar verses in the book of Ruth. Verse 16 and 17, chapter 1, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Lodge is, for those of you younger folks, uh, wherever you lodge, wherever you're staying the night, that's where I want to stay the night. Wherever you're hanging out at night and lay your head on your pillow, that's where I want to hang out and lay my head on my pillow. I'm going to go with you. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Now remember just a verse previous to this. Naomi's tried to encourage Ruth to follow her sister-in-law back to her people and her gods, plural. Ruth here is saying, I'm not going anywhere. I want you to understand something, Naomi. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Listen, here are the implications of this. If, if what she's saying, and she's meaning it, and I do believe she does mean what she's saying here, her actions, talk about her, her actions play this out. But to say that your God is my God is to forsake all of the other gods, is it not? It's, it's exactly what Joshua told the people at the end of Joshua. Forsake all of these other gods. Incline your heart to God this day. Love that. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. We don't know to what extent she knew about this God. 
but she had some time where she was living in this home of Elimelech. We, don't, we know that Elimelech was not on the scene very long, and we know that Malon wasn't on the scene all that long. We got 10 years. But within that window of time, there was something that happened. Ruth saw something. Ruth heard something. She noticed something. And now she's confronted with a choice. Isn't it interesting in these last few books, and this one included, there's this theme of choosing. Choosing. Choose this day whom you're going to serve, Joshua says. And and Moses in Deuteronomy has a choice. Life or death, good or evil. Choose life, he says. And here these two young ladies are confronted with a choice. Are they going to follow their mother-in-law or are they going to go back to their homeland and their gods? Orpah returns, Ruth stays. Where you die, I will die. Where, and there will I be buried. So what she's saying here in terms of her loyalty, in terms of her commitment, this is no half-hearted deal that she's speaking to. Where you die, where you get buried, that's where I want to be buried. I don't want to just sleep where you sleep. I don't want to just be where you want to be. I'm not going to just be with your people. I'm not just going to serve. I'm going to be all the way to the end. I'm going to be here. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. That's sort of the covenant, the oath aspect of what she's just saying here. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. I'm not a big fan of that particular translation. She she gave up. Naomi just simply gave, okay, I got it. All right, we're, we're done talking about it. You can come. And so they journey. They go to Bethlehem and they arrive in Bethlehem. And upon coming to Bethlehem, we're, we're met with these women who recognize Naomi. Now remember, how many years has it been since she's been in town? At least 10 years, right? 10 years since she's been here. Her and, and Ruth, are, they're now in town. And it says they came to the town and, and the, all the city was... Filled with excitement is what the New King James says. Now that sort of leads us thinking maybe in a one direction. But if you look at some other translations, I think there are some better words to use here than excitement. I think of excitement and I think of, hey, hey, she's here, all right. But if you look at the context, I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think the King James maybe says moved. I think there's another translation that says stirred. I really think that... Hits it well. All the city was stirred when they saw her coming in to town. Why were they stirred? Why were they stirred? It leads you to believe when the question they ask, is this Naomi? Aren't there a lot of ways that that question could be taken? Is this Naomi? You know what I think? I think that when Naomi came into town, I think that there was something noticeably different about Naomi. Physically? Mentally, emotionally, all of that captured on a face, body language. People that were not with her. Something's happened. Now we know that she's lost her husband. We know that she's lost her two sons. But it seems that she's lost something else upon entering her homeland. The women can tell that something's changed. 
body language seems to be sending a signal, at least at some level. And the women in Bethlehem pick up on it immediately. Naomi hears her name mentioned as she comes into town. Her name means pleasant. She hears her name. It reminds her that she doesn't feel very pleasant right now. It pierces her heart, I believe, when she hears her name. By the way, that's something that we've lost sight of in many regards is a name, the value of a name. This was a big deal. Do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? You read that, and and you sense just a little Mara in her for sure, right? (laughs) It's hard to miss the Mara coming out of her as she's speaking to the women. She's bitter, she's hurt, she's angry, she's ready to lash out, it seems. She's, She's pinning the blame on God. Now, in chapter 1 alone, verse 13, we see that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has dealt with me very bitterly. Verse 21, the Lord has brought me home empty. Verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. Verse 21, the Almighty has afflicted me. And it is true, at some level, the Lord has allowed these things to happen. Yes, it's true. But the weight of Naomi's pain is really felt in these verses. Naomi has returned home, but she's not truly empty. Remember, Ruth is with her. And as I read the text, I wondered, what does Ruth think? Empty? What about me? How might that have been just the thing that would have caused a a, a bitterness On behalf of Ruth. She doesn't even acknowledge I'm here. I lost a husband too. I mean, you can imagine. But you know what I don't see in the text? I don't see any of that coming out of Ruth. Tells us a lot about Ruth says a lot about her character. She doesn't get bitter toward Naomi for her lack of awareness (laughs) that she's right here beside her. Ruth the Moabitess. It seems like the writer doesn't want us to forget that Ruth is a Moabitess. They've come from Moab. Don't forget it. That's the way the chapter ends. Oh, but before it ends, it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I love this. I love this. As you read Ruth, read it in such a way, maybe go back through it again later today, and and notice at the end of chapter 1, end of chapter 2, end of chapter 3, even at the end of chapter 4, there are these little messages that are given. And some of these are like strange. Like, why would this be right here? Other than the fact that the author wants us to know this means something. Or things are going to change. She's dwelling at home with Naomi, it says. 
right, at the end of chapter 2. She dwelt with her mother-in-law. Well, that's a strange way to end it. Well, because very soon she's going to not be dwelling with her mother-in-law. She's going to be dwelling with this guy named Boaz. And at the end of chapter 3, I love the end of chapter 3. We'll just keep rolling on this one. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Sit still, wait. I I love this because in the midst of this whole idea of this kinsman redeemer that pops up in chapter 3 and continues into chapter 4, there's this period of waiting, 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 waiting. She's going to have to wait. And on the other end of the waiting, we're left between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And as a reader, are we not hoping that this kinsman redeemer is going to be Boaz. Lord, make it Boaz. We want it to be Boaz. We don't want it to be this other guy. We don't know who he is. He's a closer relative. But Lord, we want it to be Boaz because we like what we see in the text about Boaz. And we're left waiting. I love this about the text. Well, barley harvest is no different at the end of chapter 1. Barley harvest, going back to the feasts of the people of God in Israel, uh, this was the time of spring, right? March, uh, uh, April, March, April time frame, spring. And it was a time of first fruits. Remember the feast of first fruits? Uh, For the follower of Christ, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, the first fruits symbolized the time of Christ's resurrection. And so they come into Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Think about theme. Think about symbolism. Think about time of the year, them coming in. And this barley harvest is looking back. The time of resurrection for us in Christ looks back to this time when Christ died, the death of Christ, our faith. We remember our faith, grounded and rooted upon Christ who died at the cross. And the resurrection, uh, the Bible says that we've been raised for our justification. And we see that this time of barley harvest is going to look forward to the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which is the beginning of new life. Oh, do you see this? New life. So they're coming into town. Things look really bad. Death, backdrop, black, bleak. Looks really bad. Is this Naomi? I'm bitter. All this stuff. And then at the end of chapter 1, you see they're arriving the time of barley harvest. Town is abuzz. It's harvest time for Israel. Spirits are in general up. Time of thanksgiving, gratitude for the crops. There's a renewal going on and into this context comes Mara. Miss Bitterness comes into this context. And then in chapter 2 verse 1 we get introduced to a relative of Naomi. A man of great wealth. Remember kinsman redeemer? He had the ability to pay. He had the ability to pay the redemption price. This man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And then it just like stops right there and goes back to Ruth and Naomi. It snaps back to Ruth and Naomi. It's like the writer just wants you to know, I'm about to tell you something really important about Boaz. Hang on to Boaz because he's going to come to play a very important role in what we're talking about here. Boaz is the son, by the way, of Salmon. If you read Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, some wonderful genealogy there, as wonderful as genealogies can be. Wonderful genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. We see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, that Boaz is the son of Salmon. And Salmon had a mother that you're probably familiar with. Her name is Rahab. Rahab, we know her in the text. We know her as that lady that lived in the wall, uh, in the wall of Jericho. She was a Canaanite. Right? She was a harlot. Salmon and Rahab bore Boaz. 
Okay, so that makes Boaz half Canaanite, son of a harlot from Jericho. Interesting literary device to introduce Boaz right here in chapter 2, verse 1. And it's going to connect, right? It's, it's this man is going to play a pivotal role in resurrecting, resurrecting barley harvest, resurrecting the family line of Elimelech. Ruth takes initiative. She asks permission of Naomi to go into the fields to glean some barley for food. And the text says in chapter 2, verse 3, that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Church, let me ask you a question. Do you think it was by coincidence she happened to go to the field that belonged to the guy introduced to us in verse 1, Boaz? I don't think it was a coincidence. I think it was, this is all orchestrated by the Lord, as all things are. Orchestrated by his hand. Verse 4 we get a glimpse of Boaz and the kind of man he is. Man, I'm, signed, I'm sure um, this, is, this is one of those things. This is our first glimpse at Boaz in action. And he comes to the field. He comes from Bethlehem. He comes to the field. And, he, and you just get the idea that he is, he's got his eyes on all of his workers. And you get the idea that this is not a one-time deal. This is a pattern for him. He comes to the field and he, he blesses those that are reaping in, in the fields for him. Blessed are you, he says. Bless you. Lord, bless you. And they answer him back. The Lord bless you. It's almost like this back and forth, this response. Not only was he a great man of wealth, but he was a great man to work for. Men, great lesson right here. Side note. Be someone that's great to work for. Show appreciation for those who work for you. That can start and begin even in the household. You get the idea that Boaz regularly paid visits to his workers. He showed up to bless the reapers in, the, in their work in the day ahead. And the workers are bestowing a blessing on their master. There's, a, there's, there's this great working relationship that's going on. But notice, Boaz, Boaz notices this young woman in the mix of his workers that day. And it leads me to believe that he took inventory. Perhaps Boaz was the kind of master, the kind of boss, that actually knew the names of his people in the field. He knew him by name, perhaps. And so on this particular day, he notices this young woman. And he asks the question. Whose young woman is this? And he hears from the foreman, he hears the story of Ruth. And hears of all the kindness. By the way, not only is kinsman redeemer a big theme in this book. But let me give you the other K. It's kindness. Kindness, kinsman, redeemer. Those are two handles. If you could think about the book of Ruth and think about those two words as big idea themes, uh, that'll help you in a long, go a long way with understanding this book. Kindness. There are other words we can substitute for kindness. Uh, mercy, favor. Um, uh, we could go loving kindness, uh, loyalty, right? Steadfast love. The, the, all these kind of go, go together. We see favor shown. Fall under the umbrella of kindness, he hears the story of Ruth, and he knows firsthand now what she's done and the kindness that she's shown toward her mother-in-law, Naomi. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 2, the first words from Boaz to Ruth. You will listen, my daughter, will you not? I love how that's phrased in a question. You will listen. I've got some very important things for you to hear, and you need to make sure you listen to these words for your safety, for your security. Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. 
Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? He's providing security for her. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Her response is, why me? I'm just a foreigner. Why such favor? Why such kindness? And Boaz says, the Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. Under whose wings you've come. He understands that Ruth has come here to this place under the refuge of the Lord. And in just one chapter removed, this concept of under the wings is going to come into play as she comes under the covering of Boaz at midnight. And she's going to seek covering under the roof of Boaz. Boaz is recognizing the hand of the Lord upon her. And Ruth says, you've comforted me. You've spoken kindly. There it is again. You've spoken kindly to me. Boaz then commands his men to allow Ruth to glean, even among the sheaves, to not rebuke her. Let some of the grain fall purposefully, guys. Let it fall. I want her to get some of this. And don't reproach her for doing this. And Ruth takes home about an ephah of barley. Uh, That's a lot of barley. And she's carrying, just think about this, she's carrying all this barley home and she gets back home to Naomi. And Naomi sees what Ruth brought home and she says, where have you gleaned today? Who, where did you work? Who, blessed be the one who showed you favor and gave you work. Ruth tells her the name of the man and the man's name is Boaz, she says. And I imagine Naomi, about if she's sitting down, I imagine her falling off her chair. If she's standing, perhaps she fainted and passed backwards for just a moment. Because she knew that Boaz was a relative, a close relative. Look at verse 20. Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. The dead would be Elimelech, right? Malon, Kilion. The living would be her and and Ruth. But did you hear what Naomi, Mara, did you hear what she said? Blessed be the Lord. Remember five times in chapter one, she's calling out the Lord as the one whose hand is heavy on her. And now it's blessed be the Lord for his kindness. Ruth stayed close by the women of Boaz. She obeyed throughout the days of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. That's the end of chapter 2. And the days are coming when she's going to be dwelling full time with Boaz. It's coming. The day's coming. Naomi at the beginning of chapter 3 plans to provide rest and security for Ruth. We see there in chapter 3 at the beginning... Right at the beginning, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? That was really what she had in mind from the beginning when she called them to go back to their homeland, that they would find rest for themselves. Same, really, idea, same concept found right here in chapter 3, verse 1. With recognition that Boaz is a close relative or a kinsman, She begins to prepare Ruth for her next steps. Now, what follows in Ruth chapter 3, church, may seem a little odd to us, right? Seems a little odd. Seems a little 
forthcoming, uh, outgoing. Uh, there may be some other words that you'd use there. Moms, you probably wouldn't recommend this today for your daughters, okay? But in the day, there was a certain practice, and this practice that we're reading about is actually, uh, ha- has some, some, some high character things attached to it. Uh, I, I do believe that as we, as we look at this text, and we see that um, Ruth chapter 3, while odd, this, this whole concept of uncovering of the feet was, was seen in two different ways. It was seen as a, a modesty gesture. It was seen as a subjection uh, gesture. Um, what's even more amazing to me than, uh, than what Ruth does in uncovering and laying at the foot of Boaz at midnight? What's more amazing to me than all of that is how Boaz responds to waking up at midnight, finding a young woman at his feet. You know, this story could really turn a wrong direction if Boaz responded poorly. But praise God, Boaz responds in a very godly way, in a very loving way. And now, my daughter, do not fear, chapter 3, verse 11. I will do for you all that you request. Here's the willing kinsman redeemer. I will do all that you request, for all the people of the town know that you are a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 that was Ruth, virtuous woman. All the people of the town know what kind of person you are. I couldn't be happier, Boaz says. He's agreeing to take responsibility for Ruth, and he's agreeing to be the kinsman redeemer for Elimelech's family. And yet he also knows there's a closer relative. So he informs her that he'll take care of this the next day. If he chooses to redeem you, he says, great. But if he doesn't, I will do it. And so chapter 3 ends with Ruth going on back home, telling Naomi the situation. And, and, and you, I can't, again, I'm reading the story, and I, I'm just sensing every time Ruth tells Naomi some information that's like good and positive, Naomi is like, oh, okay, um, sit still. Um, wait till the morning. He's going to take care of this immediately. And he does the very next day. In fact, we see that in chapter 4, as chapter 4 opens, and by the way, as a reader, we, we so want Boaz to be the redeemer, don't we? We want him to be that kinsman redeemer. L- look at how this all goes down in chapter 4. Boaz went up to the gate, sat down. He, he sits down at the gate, and then behold, the, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so he like grabs him. I mean, not like forcefully. He grabs him says, hey, come here, friend, come here. And he, he sits down, and then he gets these ten guys, the elders, at the, and they sit down, and they, they judge this case. This is not like... They didn't plan this out. It wasn't like a three-week deal like some of our stuff that happens today. I love the simplicity of how this all gets handled. How they deal with this transaction. How they deal with a real situation. They take the ten men and they have them sit down. He explains to the close relative exactly what the situation is in verses 3 and 4. He says, hey, if you, if you want, you're the closest relative. If you want to redeem uh, this land, um, it's yours to, to buy, purchase. And notice what he says. I will redeem it at the end of verse 4. Now, if you don't know what's next, you're, as a reader, you're just going, oh, man. I hope this guy's, I hope he's as good as Boaz. Boaz then says in verse 5, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative, I don't think the close relative had to think a whole lot about this. Seems like he's pretty quick to give a response to this. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. Now, we don't know this man's story. Perhaps he was married and had children of his own and didn't want to mess up his own inheritance. Possibly. I don't know. Whatever the reason is, he didn't want the responsibility of Ruth in perpetuating her family line. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom. Here's the way this all went down. So he can't. The nearest kin says, no, I can't. And so the redeeming exchanging to confirm, one man would take off his sandal and give it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. You know, on the margin of my Bible, I just put, how simple? How, how simple? Uh, you know, one of the things I love about, there's a lot of things that are wrong about what we've read so far up to this point in the Old Testament, but there's some things that are really simple and really good that I wish we had in place today. Like, like my word is good. My handshake is good. My word, just take me at my word. Take me at my sandal. This is what I mean. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Now, we don't know if he ended you know, there's questions that come up right there. You know, like, did the guy just lose out on a nice pair of sandals? He had to give one of them up, or was it just for formality's sake, and they gave it back to him afterwards? We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. I guess it's not that important. It's one of those little things that we tend to worry about when we read the text, though. We keep going. Boaz said to the elders, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kelion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. So here is the redemption of the land. Right? Now, the next verse is going to be the redemption of the, from the marriage standpoint. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I've acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And the people witness to this. And the, the people then, they, they issue a blessing, don't they? The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Remember Rachel and Leah? Those are the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez. That's more of a head scratcher, I have to admit. Um, you know, when you bring into the picture of Tamar and Judah and how that all came about. And, um, you know, I, I was reading that again. And, and while I may not have a... Uh, a, um, on track, this is why that's here, that blessing. I know that the genealogy at the end of chapter 4 ends and it begins with Perez. The the whole arrival of Perez on the scene, his name actually means breakthrough. And I got to thinking about that because, you see, the first hand to come through wasn't Perez. His hand ends up going back to his his twin brother and, and Perez breaks through the maidservant. The midwife says, hey, you broke through. And thinking about breakthrough and thinking about this flourishing, thinking about one day. And this line of Perez was going to continue. This line of Elimelech, the Ephrathites, all the way to that of David as we see at the end of chapter 4. The simplicity of the transaction Let's, let's finish looking at verse 13. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And then he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. You know, back in chapter 1, things looked really bad, didn't they? May his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you, listen to these words, a restorer of life and a nourisher. A restorer and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Naomi, don't forget your daughter-in-law. Back in the day, you might have said that you came back empty. Hopefully now you see that you truly didn't come back empty. You came back with a daughter-in-law who loved the Lord and was willing to show kindness and mercy to you and serve you. And now she's serving her husband, Boab. Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name. There is a son born to Naomi. Do you get the community aspect here with the arrival of the child? Chapter 1, death. Chapter 4, birth. The neighbor women gave him a name. They called his name Obed. They called his name Obed. Isn't that interesting? The community women. Obed, by the way, means serving. One who serves. In what way do you think Obed served, especially in those infant early days? I think in those infant early days, I believe the serving of Obed gets played out in how he nourishes and restores the soul of Naomi. Unbeknownst to baby Obed, baby Obed is serving And he has no idea. He's bringing this joy to Naomi. Well, it ends by getting us to David. And as we'll see in the next book, in 1 Samuel, we'll be introduced to this man, David. I'd like to end with a line... Speaking about the kindness, we see the kindness that's shown in this book. A kindness from Ruth toward Naomi. We see a kindness that's from Boaz toward Ruth. A kindness of Ruth toward Boaz. Mutual kindness. We also see this kindness from the Lord shown toward both Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Kindness is really a large theme, this word hesed. It's used in many occasions in the Old Testament. One writer is speaking about this kindness, and I believe this attaches nicely to Ruth. We'll just close with this. defines kindness and delineates kindness and goodness. By the way, they're both Galatians 5 words, fruit of the Spirit, right? 
A sincere kindness being a sincere desire for the happiness of others. And goodness being the activity calculated to advance that happiness. But he writes that the person who has grown in the grace of kindness has expanded his thinking outside of himself and his interests and has developed a genuine interest in the happiness and well-being of those around him. Titus 3 verse 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We praise God this morning for His kindness. His kindness shown to us in Christ Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You do good and you are good. Father, I thank you for this book of Ruth, for giving us understanding, Lord, for helping us see your kindness, your loving kindness your steadfast love, your mercy, your favor, your covenant loyalty. Father, we thank you that in the midst of some real life stuff that happens in the book of Ruth, we see you working. You are still at work even in the period of the judges. You are working in the midst of this family. God, you are a God who restores and nourishes. When things look bleak and dark and dead, you are a God who brings about life. You are a God who brings about hope. You are a God who comes alongside of us and encourages us when we're in the midst of the journey. Help us to remember as we read through this book of Ruth that you are still a God at work in the lives of individuals, in the lives of families today. As dark as it may seem in our day, Lord, you are a God at work. And by faith we trust that you are working all things together for good to those who love you. So Lord, I pray that we would place our trust in a renewed trust perhaps in you this morning. Trusting that when you say you're going to do something, that you will do it. Father, I pray that we would truly trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. Lord, we would acknowledge you in all of our ways and look forward to how you will shine light on our next steps. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.